Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. On this podcast, I chat to authors about their books, the writing process, the social and political influences of their work, and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I have the great pleasure of chatting to Craig Sisterson. Craig is a features writer and crime fiction expert from New Zealand who writes for several newspapers and magazines, including the Weekend Herald, New Zealand Listener and Mystery Scene. In recent years, he's interviewed hundreds of crime writers and talked about the genre on national radio, top podcasts and on stage festivals on three continents. Today we talk about Southern Cross Crime, the pocket essential guide to the crime fiction film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. Annie, thanks so much for having me on. I mean, you've been doing this wonderful podcast for so long and had so many fantastic authors who I love on there and also introduced me to new authors and so it's a real honor to be here on your podcast. And likewise you know I love your work too and uh, we often talk to each other on Twitter and I, I saw you sort of you know face to face we'll just call Zoom face to face a couple of months ago and I just love to pick your brain so you know you being the crime fiction expert that you are me love crime fiction. I think we're going to have a really great chat here. I mean, you write for several newspapers and magazines and I'm here to just pick your brain, if that's okay with you. (laughs) Well, I don't know what you'll find. There's probably some kind of twisted and dark corners over the years, but we'll have a good chat. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) That's exactly what I want. (laughs) We'll get dark early. (laughs) Now, your new book, and I loved this book, Southern Cross Crime, the pocket essential guide to the crime fiction film and TV of Australia and New Zealand. Hit us up with an elevator pitch, Craig, as to what this book is about. Oh, actually, no one's really asked me for an elevator pitch before. This. <laughs> <laughs> I love I that that's like, the little... hard question. Yeah, people are like, oh, who's <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's going to be talking about other authors. I'm much better at, talk- I'm much better at talking we'll about other there. people we'll than myself, <laughs> um, which is where the book comes from. It's really a book shining a light on all our fantastic Aussie and Kiwi crime writers. Um, so, okay, elevator, elevator pitch. Southern Cross Crime is the equivalent of a Lonely Planet guide, but to an area of the literary world rather than an area of the geographic world. It's a Narnia door taking you into and experiencing a treasure trove of Australian and New Zealand storytelling. Don't tell me you just made that up on the spot. That was wonderful. I did. I mean, I had the. I, I, someone else, someone else mentioned Narnia Door to me a while ago. <laughs> so, so like I had that like phrase Narnia mm. Door in my head, but the rest was just made up. And I, was, I think Lonely Planet analogy before, but again, the whole thing was made up on the spot. So. Really liked it. <laughs> well, I liked. It was lovely to see so many friends of the podcast. I mean, I could name them all, but we'd be here all night. But to name a few, we had Sarah Bailey and Catherine Kovacic and. Ben Hobson and Chris Hammer and Tristan Banks, so many people that I've had on the podcast. And it was lovely to see them get a shout out in this wonderful book too. So I liked that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a strange year for all of us. And it's a particularly strange year to be releasing your first book. And this book is, I guess, a little bit of a culmination of 10 or 12 years of my reviewing and critic and awards judge and festival chairing and other things in crime writing journey. Um, so it is, it is very weird, but, but it was a real pleasure to write and it's, it's a real pleasure to talk about it now because as I kind of said, like I like shining a light on other storytellers. I like, that's kind of what I do with interviewing is I'm just trying to say to everyone who's reading or watching, hey, 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 look at this really cool thing. You need to know about this really cool thing. And I've been doing this 
um, about Australian and New Zealand authors, amongst lots of other things I do, for over a decade. And so the book was kind of just like wanting to share that. And it's a little bit of a giving back to the crime writing community for me, because the crime writing community has given me so much. When I was just this young reviewer from New Zealand who liked the books and interviewed authors and and wrote about them and, and got given a whole lot of crazy opportunities because of it. So. Oh, that's great. And I wanted to ask you, because in this book you've curated, you know, key titles from over 250 storytellers. I mean, you say you've been reading for over a decade of crime fiction, but what was your process in putting it all together in this book? Like, how did you do that? Um, well, a big shout out to a British reviewer who some people may have heard of called Barry Forshaw. Now, Barry's been around for a long, long time. He's very kindly starts calling himself the British Craig Sisterson now and that I'm the Kiwi Barry Forshaw. <laughs> I love but that. Barry, um, Barry's a very experienced reviewer who's been around for decades, been doing some amazing stuff. He's edited a crime fiction magazine that was in print for many years and is now an online magazine called Crime Time. He's the person, if you watch the CWA Daggers, they were online on Zoom this year. Um, he's the person who's the MC or the compare for that. So he's like a really cool reviewer over here who knows like a thousand times more than me. I think though he credits me with more knowledge than I have, which is lovely. But Barry has a series um, for Old Castle Books, which is a great publisher, Old Castle Noex in London. And he's done, uh, he was one of the first people to actually write kind of about Stig Larson and things like that before when a Scandi broom happened. Mm -hmm. And he's, um, you know, even written a book about that. And he's also done another book called Nordic Noir, which is akin to Southern Cross Crime, and that it's a reader's guide. And he's done them on Europe and um, American Noir, uh, British Noir, and yeah, European Noir, which is all France, Italy, Poland, kind of some translated stuff as well. And so Barry had kind of set up the template a little bit and his books were the first that I'd come across. I'd read academic kind of books about crime writing or academic articles before, but his was the first that was more of this kind of Lonely Planet or Rough Guide style kind of magazine writing style mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than footnoted, you know, kind of thing. Um, trying to make it really accessible and really for readers rather than for academics and people studying. And so I was kind of introduced to that by Barry's books. And at one point, I got a bit cheeky and said to him, you know, you, you should probably have an Australian and New Zealand one in the series. You know, Jane Harper's just won the Gold Dagger and there's all this cool stuff going on. Michael Rebotham won it a couple of years before. Michael, of course, has gone and won it again this year. Um, but this was like two or three years ago we were chatting. And Barry's like, yeah, you should write it. And, and so he introduced me to his publisher. And that's kind of how it happened. And, and so I was kind of following his template in terms of um, how to include, you know, doing that kind of like an encyclopedia where you've got a paragraph or a chunk on people and you're trying to distill it and have as much as possible and without overwhelming people, make it engaging mm -hmm. as well. So it's a tricky balance to find. But I added a couple of wrinkles in that are different to Barry's. Um, sorry, Barry. <laughs> but, you know, you got to have your own style. So I had the long section at the back of the Unusual Suspects thing, which was the longer interviews with 13 Australian and New Zealand kind of... Um, legendary or key figure kind of crime writers and I also included uh, young adult and kids crime writing which uh, all the other books in the series just focus on adult crime writing but I just think the young adult and kids authors in general crime or otherwise are just amazing they're yeah. wonderful so many of us I've interviewed over 300 crime writers in the last decade on stage for magazines newspapers etc and pretty much everyone when you talk to, when you ask them what got them what to want to be a writer, why they love reading, it's always a book from their childhood. It's always an author from their childhood, often a young adult or kids author that first kickstarts it. And so I just, I didn't want to leave them out because the Hardy Boys and other books like that were huge for me. And I know that we've got some amazing Australian and New Zealand young adult and kids crime writers, and I just thought they should be included as well. So they were kind of the two curveballs or wrinkles or a, you know I, th I threw a couple of googlies in there so using an Aussie and Kiwi term you, know? <laughs> you made I, it your own but I like yeah. inclusion I think it's really important I mean I love reading YA fiction I'm definitely not in that age group but I love reading it too so I think you know yes as a young reader but I think they've also got something for adults I often think why are they even called YA fiction you know when they're so good for adults to read as well well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and there's a whole debate online and some people for and against, you know, I, I had an author friend um, 
in New Zealand who's a, a literary author and involved in festivals. And she made the comment once online of, you know, it's great that adults enjoy YA books, but we should remember that the audience, that they are designed for a young adult audience. And she was just meaning, like, don't forget the teen readers. They are who the books are actually for. Don't make it all about the adults. And, God, she got a pile on on Twitter from all these American, like, YA um, bloggers and stuff who kind of thought she was taking a shot at them when she oh. hadn't mentioned any that probably didn't even know half of them. You know, but it was really interesting to see just the passion mm. about YA fiction from the adult reading community as well, which was... That's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Mm. But, yeah, I, th- I think it's... Um, YA and, and kids as well. Like even, um, I think they call it middle grade in the States. I, I don't quite yeah, know. Really we get a bit of middle grade here, yeah. Yeah, kind of how we refer to it in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. But so. they, they cross over obviously as well. It's funny, I saw a tweet today um, and um, they said, I'm writing a YA book and they said, oh, so going to be less, uh, less murder and violence. And she said, no, just less swearing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty, much, uh, pretty much the YA thing is, is usually less swearing and less sex. Um, like it's that kind of thing the violence is often there um i remember interviewing harlan coben the great harlan coben many years ago for one of my first um articles for the listener and i'd enjoyed harlan so this is like 2010 11-ish and um i'd enjoyed harlan's books for years like he writes some incredible standline thrillers and i really like his myron series as well myron bolotar and uh but I was into, I ended up interviewing him about a YA book that he wrote at the time called Shelter, I believe. There's a whole series. And it was the first one, and it had Myron's, um, Myron's nephew was the hero. And it was interesting to see how he did that compared to his adult books and what the differences were. I really love that he kept it just as twisty. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a slight degree, like you're not going to get all forensic-y perhaps in the violence. You're not going to get... As if there's serial killers, you're not going to get quite into the nasty scenes that you might in an adult book. So it's slightly toned down. But he kept it just as intricate, just as twisty, just as intellectually tricky to work out. Whereas I've read other adult crime writers who've gone and and written YA and it's been a really engaging book, but they've kind of dumbed it down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. because they think that the readers can't handle as much. Whereas I think teen readers can handle a lot. I, I mean, I, I was reading adult books when I was like 13 or 14 or 12 yeah. and, and, you know, kind of skipped the young adult <laughs> section at the library. But, but, um, but I think, yeah, teens can handle a lot. And um, there's been some magnificent books in Australia and New Zealand dealing with bullying, dealing mm-hmm. with, you know, technology and social media and how that impacts on people, dealing with, you know, sexual assaults and the dangers of that, um, especially for young women. So there's some really important, as mm, well as really yes. engaging Australian and New Zealand YA and kids crime writing. So. Absolutely. And you're right about keeping the intric- intricacies in it and keeping the, you know, intelligence in it. I mean, even picture books, you know, they have such yeah. levels of complexity as well. And I like that because you can read it at all different types of levels. Yeah, my, my five-year-old's already a fan of Val McDermott, which would probably horr- <laughs> horrify some people with Val. But Val actually wrote a kid's picture book called um, My Granny is a Pirate, uh, which is a fantastic kid's picture book, which I bought for our five-year-old when she was a two-year-old, and it's still one of her favourites. And we actually got um, so the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate in the UK last year, which is this wonderful festival that I would... Highly recommend if any Aussies or Kiwis are over here in Britain in future years when we can travel and everything's back <laughs> up and running. You definitely want to get along to that festival. It's amazing. amazing. Oh, count me in. What, should we pencil in 2025? Or? Yeah, well, well, let's, let's hope for 2021. <laughs> all right, all right. 2022. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, so Val, actually, I've got a photo of like Val signing it and sent the photo to Maddie's grandparents back in Australia and New Zealand, which was like really cool. So, Laura Lippman, the US uh, crime yeah. writer, is marvellous, has also written a kid's picture book, so I need to get that one for our show mm, as well. That sounds good. I like how we've sort of indoctrinated our children. My daughter, her favourite book is um, James Foley's There's Something Weird About Lena, and it's creepy and it's weird, and she's just obsessed with it. I'm like, hmm, it's probably <laughs> my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I can't walk um, our five-year-old to school or anywhere without her demanding stories. And I'm like, this is completely my fault. (laughs) Since she was a baby, she just wants stories all the time. You see them, you see yourself in them. My eight-year-old, he honestly, 
I hate telling him to stop reading, but sometimes mm. he'll be walking into walls or not eating because he's always got a book in his face. And sometimes I have to say, I really hate saying this, but can you put your book down for five minutes? <laughs> I, know. I know. I was I was very lucky growing up in New Zealand that I was uh, a sporty Kiwi like so many people are. I was using Kiwi, so played cricket in the summer and, and soccer, or oops, I should say football since I'm here in the UK. <laughs> well, I'm in Australia, so <laughs> soccer, soccer away. <laughs> yeah, soccer. But I played soccer and cricket and, some, and I did a few other things as well. But I also really love books and reading, and I was obsessed with libraries and books as well mm. as being obsessed with sport. And I, I don't think it has to be an either or. Like no. So many people think you're either a jock or a nerd or you're a jock or a geek or, you know, you get sports people over here in the UK saying, oh, why would you read a book? And it's just like, and, and that's why it's so great to see someone like Marcus Rashford, who's the, um, for those who don't know, he's a striker for Manchester United, a very large football club over here, is pretty well known worldwide. And he has done a whole lot of things to help impoverished kids, um, especially during the pandemic, um, in terms of trying to get the government to support them in terms of food, when because they would normally get lunches at school here. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The lunches are provided in the UK. Yeah. And um, obviously, if they were staying at home, they no longer got them. Or if they're staying home because of the pandemic or over the holidays, they no longer get these lunches they normally would. Wow. So he was trying to kick the government's ass to do that. And he's done that. And he's, he's got it all. And he's done all these great things. And then he's kind of got that sorted and then this week he's launched a book club and doing this whole thing about getting kids reading as well oh my god i'm just like marcus can you just stop i am like a liverpool fan my entire life you are a united player i I think i love him i am not meant to like you let alone love you can you just (laughs) stop for a minute you know but it's just amazing bloody perfect (laughs) yeah an amazingly impressive young man but I, i love it also too and this hasn't been talked about but we were kind of talking about it, is that he's a sports star mm-hmm. who loves and appreciates books as well. Yeah. And Great so many writer. times there's like a misperception out there that you kind of lean one way or the other. And I think that's just bullshit, basically, you know. Mm. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have a balance, I think. Yeah. Now, I love at the beginning of this book how you've got Michael, uh, Michael Robotham and he states mm. why we love crime stories. And this really resonated with me because I thought, yeah, that's actually right because I love crime fiction. And I've never really thought about why. I just always really enjoy it. I love the twists. I love the language. I love the horror. I like being freaked out, you know, because, you know, I mean, you would know more than anyone when you read so much, you get a little bit desensitized. So when something can surprise you or you're not expecting something or you can learn something, that's a really exciting moment, you know, and that often happens in crime fiction. And I love how he was saying, you know, why we love crime stories because, and I'm going to quote here, because deep down in places we don't like to talk about, we wonder what it would be like to pull the trigger or fear that someone we know might be lying beneath that white sheet. Being drawn to crime is a deep curiosity about what makes us human, including all the dark and hidden parts. And I thought, wow, he's just hit the nail on the head, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's the best piece of writing in my book is in the introduction from Michael, but unsurprisingly so. Um, but, uh, and congratulations again to Michael. I haven't had a chance to talk to him face-to-face or even on Zoom since he won the Golden Yeah, Dragon, wonderful. Amazing well that he won it twice. Very exclusive club along with like Ruth Rendell and Dick, and Dick Francis and John Lacari and some other people. So that's really wow. amazing. It's an amazing quote. And I was wondering, you know, that's definitely part of why I'm drawn to crime fiction. Why are you drawn to crime fiction, I should add? Well, similar to what you've said, um, as I say, I kind of first got into crime with the Hardy Boys when I was a little kid growing up in the top of the South Island of New Zealand, a little town outside a place called Nelson. And I loved the Hardy Boys books. And I think it was the mystery and the adventure, you know, when you're seven, six, seven, eight, nine or whatever, it's the adventure and the, these teenagers going out and they're having adventures and they're helping people. I did like that aspect too. They're helping people. They're trying to uncover mysteries. So there's that kind of uh, intellectual mental aspect of the puzzle and the mystery. And can you work out what's going on before they work out? So there's that kind of game part of it, which are Agatha Christie and Naya Marsh and Dorothy Sayers and all those kind of writers from the golden age, they were almost like crossword puzzle books, you know? <laughs> it's like, mm. can you work it out? Like playing yeah. the game of Cluedo and stuff like that. And so there's that. And then, like you say, you can, especially when you get into the, um, for me, it was when I was older. There weren't as many of the, the kind of thriller books for young adults when I was young. But you're, you're getting that now with like Ali Marnie and Fleur Ferris mm. and other people you mentioned, where they are pulse pounding thrillers for teens, not just intellectual 
crosswordy puzzle ones. And um, so you, you kind of have this, you know, this intellectual thing. You have this um, kind of adrenal, for want of a better thing, <laughs> you know, the kind of emotional attachment. And I think something that crime does really well, which isn't always talked about because so many people think of it as very plot-based or plot-centric, perhaps. But I honestly think the best crime writing is about character and yeah. place. And the plot is just the way that you get there and the way you experience the characters in place and get you turning the pages. And because when you think about it, like there's very few other forms of storytelling where you're following a character for 15 books. Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't get a lot of literary fiction series where the same characters in 15 books and you get to know them, not just in one book, but many books over. So any actually. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that's often overlooked is that crime has great characters in single books, but it also has that opportunity and not everyone does this. Sometimes they stay the same, but it has the opportunity to evolve them. So you have an even greater character arc. It's kind of the equivalent to those amazing long form television series we have now compared to a film, Mm. you know, kind of thing. And you can have great characters in a film, but then you can have great characters in like, you know, 10 episodes for six seasons. And it's very different. And I think crime fiction gives you that opportunity, like a long form television series on top of just having very good single standalone book characters and stuff as well. And, and the characters kind of get you in the heart. So you have the, the kind of the mind stuff, and then you have the kind of thriller adrenal kind of stuff. And then you have the heart stuff as well from the characters in the place and the social issues. So I think, and, and crime can delve into so many issues that other fiction sometimes avoids um, because they'll go into the dark places because mm. of the type of stories that are. And it's a lot about criminal justice and justice in the world and putting things right or they're not putting right. Um, so I think there's just so many layers to what makes it great. And uh, that's why I like it. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely true. There is so many layers to it. And I especially like your psychological thrillers, which is really getting inside the head of people and why people act in certain ways. I think that's what fascinates me. You know, how do you get to that point where you're going to act like, you know, however, yeah. like, you know, I'm thinking of, of Jack Heats. I'm reading Hideout at the moment, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah, Jack's about, a wonderful writer. Oh, I, I love that book. It was funny. I read a review the other day for Hideout, the third um, book in the series, that said when you read the blurb, you think this isn't going to work, but you read it mm. and it just works beautifully, which is, is kind of true, isn't it? Have you ever heard the story about Jack from about, a dozen years ago. And it's funny because I'd, I'd heard about Jack before I'd ever read his books, but mm-hmm. I'm not like I knew he was a writer, um, but I'd heard about him because of his response to another writer. Have you ever heard that story? I'm not sure. I know Jack pretty well. Please tell me. <laughs> I hope he doesn't mind me sharing because he has <laughs> talked about this himself in the past. Um, but there's a New Zealand crime writer called Paul Cleave who's just excellent, like Val McDermott and Mark Billingham and all these, Ian Rankin, they all rave about his books and say how great they are. He should be so much huger in the US than the UK. He sells tons in Germany and France and lots of places. Publishing world gets weird. He wasn't published in the UK for a long time, even though he was a bestseller in so many places. Um, Won lots of awards and won French crime writing awards, New Zealand crime writing awards, been shortlisted for the Edgars and the Barrys in the States. So wonderful, wonderful writer. Very dark. Serial killer stuff. His, his debut was actually told from the perspective of, his, of a serial killer, and it was written before Dexter came out as the TV series. But mm-hmm. by the time it got published, it was kind of around the same time. And it was um, it was about a serial killer called Joe, um, who's the Christchurch carver, because it's set in Christchurch. And Joe is a very smart guy, obviously, and has managed to get away with it. But he pretends to be a mentally challenged janitor in the police station. So he's like watching them all the time and watching Mm -hmm. them try and chase them. And it's just part of the game for him. But then there's a copycat killing though. He's, he's the only one who knows it's a copycat killing because the police just think it's one of his, but he obviously knows it's not. So he's like, right, I'm going to catch the copycat and then pin all the crimes on him kind of thing. So it's a very cool setup. And it, it was Paul's first book, and he's got better and better and better since then. And this was a very, very good book. It sold tons in Germany. It was, I think, a number two or three crime bestseller that year oh. it came out with Lee Child and Stig Larsen and stuff. But the story about Jack, and sorry, I'm making this more long-winded than it needs to be, <laughs> but there's a couple of quite... Na- Paul... Paul writes beautifully, and is, but it's quite sharp and there's some rough edges in terms of he, he gives you a bit of an elbow in the gut at times. 
but he does it um, not in that torture porn way, but he does take you to some dark places. And there's a particular scene that men in particular might struggle with, shall we say, <laughs> kind of thing, <laughs> of something that happens to one of the characters. Mm-hmm. And apparently Jack read that on a plane and fainted. Yes, yes, I do remember him telling me this. <laughs> so that was Paul Cleves, The Cleaner, which was Paul's yes, first book. He's written 11 books since. They're all wonderful. Um, <laughs> the Cleaner's a fantastic book, but I actually think Paul's probably written six or seven or eight books that are even better than it, and The Cleaner's fantastic. And then Jack goes and writes a three-part series of A Cannibal. So Yeah, so that's, prob- that's possibly Paul Cleves' fault. Mm, <laughs> you know, there's pro- possibly people fainting over hideout, you know, very soon. <laughs> yeah, I would, yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. He's like him and Paul are maybe having a wee battle now. Paul, Paul's actually um, Paul's actually kind of gone and he had a lot of serial killer thrillers early on, which were really high level, really because you get a lot of mediocre serial killer thrillers around the world. Um, they're just hopping on the Thomas Harris bandwagon, that kind of thing. But Paul's are exceptionally good, like Bell McDermott's ones and, and other people like that, where they just do them really, really well. But he's actually kind of gone a slightly different way in more recent times. So Trust No One. Like, if you like psychological thrillers, you definitely want to read Trust No One. That was one of my favourite books from about four or five years ago. I thought it should have gone bananas around the world, but I think it came out the same year as Girl on the Train. Uh, and so it was kind of, you know, that took over everything. And I'm like... God damn it, there's this New Zealand book that's got this amazing, unreliable narrator and it's just completely getting overshadowed because so much attention is paid to this other good but not great, like um, unreliable narrator book, you know, kind of thing. So, it's a shame. That, you can read more than one book a year. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lots of people loved it. It got good reviews, but it was one of those ones where I was like, oh, this should have been the one that mm. kind of Jane Harper the Dried, where everyone's like, oh, who's this amazing writer? You know, kind of thing. But that's about a crime writer who um, gets early onset Alzheimer's and uh, and then starts confessing that his crime novels, which were really popular, were based on crimes that he committed himself when wow. he was younger. But he's effectively in the early stages of dementia, even though he's in his 40s. So, And people are like, no, you just think that because you're remembering. But then, young, um, then some women start going missing when he goes walkabout from his treatment. Oh, wow. And stuff. And so it's like, we don't know. And it's told from his perspective, but it's told from his perspective in three ways. And it's, there's like um, the story of, he starts writing what he calls his madness journal. Um, So you've got this journal aspect to it of him as he's kind of getting deeper and deeper into this and losing his mind slowly. And then there's some other writing from his perspective. And there's even a second person perspective from, because he wrote under a pseudonym. So it's kind of from a pseudonymous author. And so he's even used second person, which you very rarely see. see And I'm like, if you take the crime out and you'd just written the book and it was about something else, this would have been like, lauded everywhere for this amazing piece of literary fiction because he's got like multiple time frames multiple things juggling use second person perspective throwing some other things in there's a lot of really interesting literary stuff but because it's about potentially a serial killer it's kind of just boxed into its little crime you know <laughs> boxes from some people but it's an amazing book it's still it's just one of those books that very I clever now put yeah. me to shame craig how many books do you read a year i'm about 80 i can't seem to push more than 80 um, I don't necessarily read a, hell, a heck of a lot more than you, Danny. Like, if we're talking, if we're just talking adult crime novels, because I obviously read other things. And, and yeah, I'm just talking. Oh, well, I'm talking about everything, actually. Oh, okay. If we're talking about everything, I've read 240 books this year um, wow. on my Goodreads thing. But that is <laughs> that is very misleading. That is incredibly misleading. You've read because... 239. No, 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 uh, because so many of them are kids' books to my daughter. Okay. Like, because that's that's why I asked about if you were just, if you're just talking adult crime novels, I would probably average eighty to one hundred and twenty mm-hmm. a year. So mm-hmm. similar to you, um, I mean, I read others that don't get finished, um, not because they're necessarily not great. But um, I've been an awards judge and stuff. So if you've got to read forty books for a debut award. Um, and you're picking five finalists. Mm-hmm. There's books that you enjoy, but you know 100 pages then aren't going to be a finalist. And yeah. so um, just because you've already read 10 others that, and there's five or six of them, you're going to rank higher. So 
it's kind of like I, I finish completely read cover to cover, um, probably in a uh, <laughs> shit. I was going to say in a low year eighty, but I didn't want to say that. Cause that's not fair. <laughs> but but, no, but, somewhere be- but somewhere between like eighty and one hundred and twenty is probably normal for me. Plus, there's another couple of three dozen. Yep. that um, started and I enjoy. And sometimes I try and get back to them later after the awards mm-hmm. have done and things like that. Um, yeah, so that's probably about right. I mean, I, I have people I know who read 200 books and people yeah. I know who read 30 or 40 books. So it's very, it's very um, you know, I've got a lot else going on. So I, I'm pretty, like, I think it's an okay number. It gives me a, a broad spectrum of what's going on out there and allows me to talk with some measure of um, knowledge about it. But at the same time, we're just scratching the surface. I mean, even if we read 200 books a year or 300 books a year, that's still only a relatively small percentage of what's released nowadays when you include all the self-published ones. So depressing, Craig. We're never going to be able to read enough books to to satisfy us. (laughs) Well, that's that's why it's important to have some degree of curation. And I'm very lucky because I tend to, um, I don't give star grades. I mean, I, I do them on Goodreads just, you know, as you do, to be fair, and stuff. But most of the reviews I do for people, there's not stars included, other than Good Reading Magazine, which is a really amazing magazine in Australia. And I'm not just saying that because I've got my book on the cover this issue <laughs> in November. But it is a wonderful magazine that I've enjoyed reading for about 13 years and enjoyed occasionally writing for over the past decade. Um and so I do stars for them because they want that. But most of my other reviews, I don't. But if we're talking on star grades, I probably I probably very rarely read a book that's less than three stars. Mm-hmm. Like most of what I read is good to excellent and outstanding. And some of that's that self-curation of what you pick. Some of it's being an awards judge. Some of it's, you, you know, I've got a review column for the Listener magazine in New Zealand, but I can only include three books a month. Um, so, you know, you, you read obviously more than that a month and then choose the three you want to highlight for whatever reasons might not necessarily be the three best, even it might just be for whatever reasons Mm -hmm. you're trying to, you know, cast a light on books you think deserve more intention. And so I don't read a lot of books that I'd one or two star. And as I say, normally, if that was the case, then, you know, I might not finish them. (laughs) You (laughs) you might not sleep ever. Yeah, so, yeah. Give up sleep. Now, I don't know if you can answer this question, but since you have read so many crime fiction novels and you read so many years and you are, you know, a judge for awards, do you have a key sort of criteria in your head of what makes, and you, know, you said good, excellent, outstanding, what are the key things that make an outstanding crime fiction novel? Can you put your finger on it or is it too complex? It's- it's a it's a very good question. I mean, it's, some of it's a gut feel, but but like everything, when we say, oh, just following my gut, your, <laughs> your gut is really all your accumulated experiences over the course of your life yeah, at that point. Right. You know, it's like it's kind of like a an un, or not unconscious, but like a subconscious kind of reaction that you mm. naturally have without having to think about it too much, based on all the stuff you've done in the past. Yeah. So for me personally, I you obviously want the the hook at the beginning to pull you into the story, something that makes you want to read. And that doesn't have to be, because often when people think, oh, attention-grabbing opening, they think it has to be like an explosion on the first page or a murder on the first page. or a, You know, they, they think it has to be something kind of big plot-wise. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It could just be a really nice piece of writing. It could be a, a way that you describe setting. Just something that hooks or grabs the attention of the reader and makes them want to turn the next page and carry on. And... And then you want to create that narrative drive um, to basically continue that throughout. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago about narrative drive and the importance of that. And there are different ways you can do that, as we showed with like Jane Harper and uh, Sean Cosby and Van de Simon and others. So I don't want to be too prescriptive because there's a lot of different ways of doing it. But you definitely want to grab the reader's attention. You definitely want to create that page-turning drive. And then I think you've got to deliver on character setting and a character and setting and the ending like you've got to um you want to leave the readers with a good taste it doesn't have to be the ending they expect and in fact sometimes it's a great if it's not but you want it to be an ending where they kind of come away satisfied at least or questioning and delivering along the way and 
we all have our different things. I have my pet peeves, um, like bad dialogue really annoys me um, because that pulls me out of the story. But we all have different things that pull us out of the story. So an outstanding book will never pull you out of the story. Uh-huh. I like that. It, um, it's like um, I remember talking to someone years and years ago and we were talking about movies, and I think it's a good analogy. But if you're sitting in the cinema, remember, remember those days? When you're sitting <laughs> in the cinema. And Barely. <laughs> um, but there are, there are movies that you're so engrossed in that the time just flies, you watch, and then you leave. Mm-hmm. And then there are movies which you enjoy but you're very aware of your seat. You're shifting in your seat. You're grabbing your popcorn, and you're very aware you're watching a movie, mm-hmm. as opposed to the outstanding ones where you're kind of fully in yeah. the movie. If that makes sense. And Absolutely. Very, it can be a very subtle difference, mm. and sometimes it's hard to pinpoint exactly why it's different. And it might be your mood in the day, and what you've watched recently, and a whole lot of other things that you, as an audience member or, or reader, bring to the thing so there's a lot that goes into it and that's why we all have different reactions to a book even a book that a lot of people think is great you'll see one star reviews some of them being nasty Mm -hmm. but some of them just genuinely it didn't click for them or probably more fairly you'll see a book that gets lots of four and five star reviews and it's interesting to read the three star ones because they still liked it Mm. but for something for them just didn't click and so we're all a little bit different on that so you don't want to be too prescriptive but I think you need to grab the reader early on. doesn't have to be with a crazy plot. Man. Just grab mm-hmm. the reader in some way. Gary Disher grabbed me on the first page of Peace a couple 18 months ago because there's the quality of the writing. Mm-hmm. Laura Lippman did the same, mm-hmm. the American author. Laura Lippman did the same to me with Lady in the Lake. And I think I mentioned in one review somewhere, because sometimes I review it you know, in Australia and the States or in New Zealand and the UK. So you end up writing multiple different size reviews for different people. And I think I mentioned either about Gary or Disher, uh, Gary or Laura or both, but it's just like, it's like you breathe out. You're like, oh, this will be good. Yeah, kind of thing. Like, you know, you're in the hands of a master storyteller. You can kind of tell on the first page and it's nothing to do with a plot. It can be yeah. the voice of, I think in Laura's yeah. case, it was the voice of the character, mm. um, the voice of this narrator character and just how it was just slightly different enough while feeling incredibly genuine not feeling put on because you can go too far you know it's like the person who tr- let's make a character who's completely different to everyone we've ever seen you know we're going to make a detective who's the opposite of everything we ever see <laughs> and you can tell they're trying too hard and that pulls you out of the story because you can kind of see the author's hand yeah. like you can see the filmmaker's yeah. hand so it's that very fine balance of immersing the reader in the world taking them on a great journey and for me i like it if there's a nice little touches of great writing throughout mm. and great dialogue and where different characters sound different because if there's sound alike or just clanging dialogue that personally pulls me out of a story oh, you, you do amazing things danny like the the amount of light that you shine on terrific storytellers from australia is just wonderful i mean i'm trying to do the same thing myself man. you I do do it really, really cool what you do thank you but i probably am um, even more effusive about talking about books this year because um, I'm pretty much been in lockdown with a mm. five-year-old. Mm. Yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> I so this understand. Is, this is one of my chances to talk about some really amazing things. And I, I mean, it's not like I gave short answers in the past, but I'm probably giving longer answers than normal. Now at the but moment. It, it feeds you, right? Like people always, you know, yeah. as you said, yeah, it nour- nourishes us. It does. And, and people say, oh, you know, you do a great job for storytellers. I'm like, well, it's just as much for me. You know, it feeds me as well. <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and we're all missing that a little bit this year. Mm. These kind of things are fantastic podcasts and, and Zoom online things and you know hopefully in years to come we'll work it out so that people can enjoy the in-person book events and book festivals but it can also still be why not use some of what we've had to make it yes, more available you know right. um you know bloody scotland this year a magnificent festival that i've been to six times now but this year was online obviously and uh, but it meant that people in Australia and New Zealand could join mm. in and watch. I'd like to see both, you know, because none of us yeah. can go out every night, especially when we have little kids. So I'd like mm. to be able to go. Okay, on Friday night I can go to that one, but then on Tuesday night I'll do it via Zoom. And you know, I'd like yeah. to have that choice. But also, like you said, in different countries or you know, more regional areas, you know, for them to be able to access things that are always in Sydney or always in Melbourne, you know. So I think it yeah. just gives people more opportunity to do that and. Yeah, I hope it continues in a way that we can blend the two together. 
I, I am going to look forward to seeing everyone in person, though, and being able to give people a few hugs. When this so. pandemic is over, and I say when it is over, because there has to be an end to it, imagine the hugging oh, that's well, going to go on. It's going to be ridiculous. Oh, yeah, it's going to be. So much yeah. hugging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you got anything else in terms of your own writing in a book in the works? Is there anything else coming out um, or in your I brain? mean, there's a couple of books. There's kind of three different book projects that I've had ideas about in the last few years, um, all slightly different. Um, whether any of them get published is in the lap of the gods a little bit. Um, obviously, COVID has kind of affected things because two of them were crime running related and I probably would have signed contracts with the publisher this year except that COVID and so, you know, when are we going to plan? When are they going to come out? How's everyone's budget and distribution? You know, all those kind of mm -hmm. things. But I have some ideas. There's another... I would like to do another kind of book like this in this series, kind of complementing again what Barry's done and bringing something that I enjoy. Um, Another thing that I really enjoy is crime writing from around the world, mm -hmm. um, including Latin America and Asia and Africa, Ooh. which not that many people focus on. And I've written about it for magazines and newspapers or online magazines. And um, I think there's a book there like this about, um, you know, because there's been books done about Scandinavian crime fiction. Yeah. Barry's done a wonderful book about, you know, French and German and, Italian and Polish crime fiction and things like that. And I think there's a room for a book that looks more globally at the crime writing from translated authors in general. So Latin America, yeah, I'd love Asia, that Africa. I'd like so that's, that's one that I have even maybe made a start on, but I and I would have been confident it would have been published and going ahead, but now I'm not so sure because of COVID kind mm. of thing. So um, and then I had another Slightly out there idea about a book, and I'm not sure how much, you're never quite sure how much to talk about projects that are just <laughs> ideas, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which kind of combined my love of travel, my love of crime fiction, and my love of interviewing people. Wow. Uh, so it's kind of another global looking book about crime writing, but it was a slightly different way of doing it. It's a book of interviews, but a book of interviews. Not with authors, but with characters. Oh, wow. That is so, so intriguing. Yeah. So basically interviewing the great detectives of the world. Wow. Um, which would obviously involve interviewing the authors about the characters, but, um, but many of whom I've already interviewed over the past decade. Okay. So I'm going to pre-order that now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's not written. Yeah. So but... the, the, a pub, my publisher was very keen on that one, but again, we've kind of had to, you know, put things on hold and this, this book was meant to come out in March or April and then it's kind of come out in September, October, but then it's really not been available in Australia until New Zealand until November because of Sydney dock strikes and everything else. Yep. And so it's kind of a very extended period. So everything's getting pushed back. But um, I would imagine that I will write another crime fiction related book, mm -hmm. maybe more than one, and hopefully that will get published. And I also, because before I was writing about crime fiction, I was a lawyer and a legal journalist, but I, the first freelance articles I wrote were actually about sports people generally. And I really love sport as well as books. And so there's a sports biography that it was actually intended to be the first book I ever wrote. But mm -hmm. when I moved to move over here to the UK six years ago, it just made it very difficult to do because it's a very Australian, New Zealand focused sports book um, about someone in the Australian and New Zealand sports community. And, uh, I would still like to write that one day. I kind of am feeling a bit guilty or ashamed that I haven't got it done because <laughs> I've interviewed some people about it and then I've just had to kind of put everything on hold, which sucks. Um, now, with everything we're doing now, with Zoom and that, I'm like, well, actually, I could do all these around the world. I could do all these around the world. Yeah, so um, I would like to restart that at some point. Again, who knows if someone would want to publish it or not. I did talk to a couple of publishers at the time who thought it was a good idea, but it was one of those situations where they would probably need to see the whole manuscript because it was a sports biography with a little bit of a difference. It was more about the person's off-field life, but not in a negative way, mm -hmm. even though some negative things happened, you know, kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so I'd like to get back to that. You know, it's trying to find the slots and the time and amongst the rest of your life.
but at the same time, it's things we love. You know? And I love sports and I love books, so I'd love to be able to write about both in the future. Yeah, they sound wonderful. I'm glad I asked that question. I'm, like I said, my pre-order's in for that character book, so uh, I'll be waiting for yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's, that's the one the publisher's particularly interested in, and I'm like, hey, hey, yeah, that's cool. I kind of I do want to talk about translators as well. <laughs> interview translators as well as translated crime fiction. I've written about translators themselves because I think it's an amazing art form. Yeah. That people don't because when we're reading a Stig Larson book or when we're reading a Simone Bucco's book or when we're reading a Nurse Sigurdard Dibble book, we're actually, um, we're reading their stories, but we're actually reading the words of someone else and we mm. often forget. That's absolutely true, isn't it? I've often wondered, you know, if you could speak the two languages fluently, how similar or how different they'd be, but some things don't translate into other languages. Right. And you think about, and I've actually interviewed a professor, it was for an article, but it's one of the reasons why I'm like, want to go back to it in more depth. But I interviewed a, pro a professor here at a university in London about, who specialises in translation, and she's like linguistics professor. But she also she writes about crime fiction translation in particular, amongst the other things she does. And she was saying that crime fiction translation is one of the most difficult mm. because you think of all the misdirection in crime fiction, all the red herrings, all those kind of things, where words and how you use them and how you set things up is so vital and important. Um, for clues, for red herrings, for misdirection, for creating those twists and making people look one way while you're doing the other thing, the whole magician's hand thing. Um, and so that adds an extra layer that literary translation and non-fiction translation and that don't have. Not that those things aren't difficult in of themselves, but it's really interesting that this genre translation is actually an even you don't want to say higher, but it's a different art form that has its own special challenges and difficulties. And I just had such a fascinating kind of hour-long conversation with her where I could only use a tiny bit in this article about translation. <laughs> and, but it got me thinking, like, I've interviewed a lot of translated authors. I've interviewed several translators plus this professor. And I just think that's another area of crime fiction, like Australian and New Zealand stuff, that I would like to shine a light on. And not that other people aren't shining a light on it already. Like, I'm not egotistical to think I'm the only one doing this. But I would think there's a place for a book about that. Well. Yeah. I love how your mind just thinks out the box because I, I've often thought of that but never thought about delving into it. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And you're right. I think a light needs to be shined on, on that kind of skill. Yeah, she gave me a really good example. I think, um, I can't remember, of course, annoyingly now. Sorry, it's, it's morning here in London. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, there's an Agatha Christie story, and uh, I think it's a pro one, and it's kind of almost a famous joke or famous kind of story or anecdote in the translating world where this young German translator who was very good and did a very good translation of this book. But because they, and they're trying to find a word for something, and they were trying to describe something in English, which is a very, and so they gave a word which actually literally or technically can mean the same thing. But because of semantics and a slight different, it actually kind of made the conclusion too obvious. Oh, wow. Because, you know, so it's just little things like that. Mm. Because the German word that they chose, which did work, but it kind of, because of the different language, it kind of gave away too much about wow. this thing. And then the flip side, there was another example where it kind of obscured it obscured kind of a key clue. So at the end, people are like... <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> they just pulled it out of their ass, you know, kind of thing. Whereas <laughs> in, the, in the English thing, there was the way the word or the, the, the way this thing is described was in such a way that you actually go, oh, I didn't think of that. They got me, you know, kind of thing, mm. because there was something about it. But the German or French translation, it didn't quite work. Like, wow. Let alone, awesome. alone humour in crime. Because mm. yeah. humor is very, um, you know, contextual too and cultural sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, I, and it's it's interesting because, um, well, sorry, I find it interesting. <laughs> I find it interesting because actually, when I think back, some of my favorite books when I was a kid were actually translated, though I didn't, mm. um, because my along with the Hardy Boys and probably slightly before them. The first series that I really loved or that I remember loving, I mean, my parents probably read me stuff when I was two or three that I don't recall being a book series. But the ones that I read myself that I really loved was actually the Asterix comics, mm. which are wonderful. And you think of all the humor, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Asterix and whether you loved it as well, but um, but the humor in them and there's this political satire and uh, like 
cartoons, effectively. You know, there's Belgio Franco cartoons. Um, but there's, there's the names, all the names of all the characters, which are all plays on words and puns and, and you know, get a fix for the wizard. I mean, that's kind of obvious as an, <laughs> as an adult. Asterix is a star. Obelix is the Menhire. You know, and, and vital statistics, the chief and cacophonics, a cacophony for, for the singer and all that. But then when I was older, and let alone all the Roman names, which are always hilarious, of all the different characters <laughs> and, and all the satire, you know, the, they meet characters that kind of look like the Beatles when they do Asterix in Britain. And there's all this really clever, multi-layered stuff going on that you love as a kid. And I still love those books now when I revisit them, you find new things in them. Who was a British translator who translated wow. them So myself... And everyone in America, everyone in Australia, everyone in Canada, everyone in the UK who loves these books, and there are millions of people who do, we love them because of Anthea Bell. Wow. Translate the humour, the satire, make it work with the pictures. I mean, that's that's high-level stuff. Yeah, it is. That's fascinating. Unnoticed, you know, kind of thing. So. Mm. I love that. So, Craig, you know, I'm sure you know, the last question that I ask everyone is, why do you write? So why do you write, Craig? Oh, I've loved writing since I was a kid. Like at school, I love making up stories. I think my parents have little crazy stories of, um, actually, I, actually, I guess I kind of wrote a mystery story a couple of pages when I was a kid where Santa was a detective. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I might have to do that as a picture book one day or something. <laughs> Please. But uh, like it was like what he does during the rest of the year when it's not Christmas, you know, kind of thing. And um, for whatever reason. Um, and I, I also wrote those crazy stories you do as a kid where, because um, I love sport, you, you basically write a story about a, a cricket test match where it's you and your friends playing for New Zealand alongside Martin Crowe and Richard Hadley against the other team, <laughs> Malik from Pakistan. It's like fantasy writing. Yeah. I, I guess it's kind of like sports fan fiction. I was actually usually pretty fair because I, I loved sport, but I wasn't a star player by any stretch. I just really enjoyed it. And so I, I usually made my friends be the ones that did really well and I was just kind of made a small contribution because that was a bit more realistic. <laughs> Um, as realistic it was for us to be playing um, with Martin Crowe and Sir Richard Hadley um, and against the Yarvid Me and Dad. None of us us are bowling Yarvid Me and Dad out. Um, So I've always, I've just always loved it. And I think, yeah, I've always loved writing since I was a kid. And it's always been something where when I was a lawyer, when I was traveling, when I was at law school, when I was at high school, when I've taken six months out to work in a vineyard, spend more time in my hometown with my parents because I've been around the world so much. I've always, writing's always been there. It has been kind of a constant in my life, though I didn't realise that for a long time. I thought it was one of many interests. But it is the constant one. Um, When I was a lawyer, I wrote articles for the Auckland Warriors magazine about interviewing their players because and that started because one of them was studying law and I wrote an article about him and then they're like oh we love your stuff keep writing so I ended up interviewing all these Kiwis rugby league players and stuff while I was working as a corporate lawyer so it's always been there on the side and I think I just love um because when it comes to because most of what I do is non-fiction although I wrote fictional stuff at various times over the years as a kid and as a teen and at, at law school, I did, you know, skits for comedy stage shows. So I've done a lot of different kinds of writing. And I just love that creation part of it, that you're taking a blank page. I mean, we all fucking hate that. <laughs> you know, you have a blank page and then you're creating some, something that wasn't there. And I've been involved as a magazine editor and a writer, and, and I love that. And I've been an editor, a student editor. And I love that, that you have nothing. And then... A week or two weeks or three months later, you're seeing people read the magazine that you created out of nothing. Yeah, kind of thing. And and from the non-fiction side, which I've done more and more over the years, um, I just love talking to people about interesting things and then saying to readers or an audience or someone else, hey, look at this cool thing, because it's about everyone else, not me, but I'm kind <laughs> of a do it. And I guess that was the legal thing. You, I wanted to represent people. I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of almost in a weird way, that same kind of desire as a writer, the kind of writing I do to advocate for people or not speak on their behalf because I know better than they do, but kind of be able to push them forward and support them and help 
That sounds probably really wanky. No, it does. But I was going to say, unfortunately for you, Craig Sisterson, this episode is all about you. <laughs> and it's a bit weird. It's weird being like, I'm used to being in your yeah, role. I know. We'll <laughs> have to switch strange. another time. Maybe we'll have another interview and we'll switch over. Well, we're going to in a couple of years when your crime novel comes out. Oh, jeez, no pressure. I don't want you reading it. You've read too many amazing books. You're not allowed to read anything I ever write. You're banned. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And (laughs) you're doing it as a... I'm going to mispronounce this because I've only ever seen it written. I've never heard anyone say it. But like the NaNoWriMo. Yeah, NaNoWriMo, National Writing Month of November. So, look, I wasn't going to do it. And then Adrian Beck, who often co-hosts with me, said, let's do this and let's record episodes Mm -hmm. each week, you know, for NaNo. And this was on the 1st of November. So we rounded up, you know, four of us to do it. And I went, okay, I'm going to do it too. So... So was it 50,000 words you mentioned? Yeah, 50,000 um, by the end of November. So, you yeah. know, I, I I don't do things halfway. I'm either in or I'm out. So. <laughs> I'm exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably see from the podcast, like I started doing recording one episode a week. I'm now doing three to four. Yeah. Um, so I'm either in or I'm out, which I think is a massive character flaw, but here we are. <laughs> no, I, I fully understand that. My Growing up in Nelson, my mum used to say to me that, Craig, you're kind of an all or nothing person. You even go like intense to the point of like, not obsessiveness in a bad way usually, but just like you go full bore yep. or something beyond what other people do. Or you just don't bother at all. That's right. You just sit on the lounge and eat limp Yeah, so, so if you see me sometimes, you'll think I'm the laziest person in the world. And if you see me other times, you'll think I'm just like, I've been called relentless by people. Like, do, you find, do you find having a child, though, you learn things about yourself that you never knew, right? So I've got a five-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son, but the five-year-old daughter somehow, I don't know, she's just a mini-me. And I was saying, oh, my goodness, she's never like a five or a six. She's like a zero, like can't cope with the world and she's crying or she's a 10. She can rule the world. I said, why is she like that? And about five faces just looked at me and went, and I went, oh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean, sometimes sometimes my five-year-old, like, she, she was a little bit slow to start talking. I'm not, not, not troublingly so but just was a little bit behind some of her peers which was unusual considering we read to her and her mum and I aren't the most kind of um quiet people she was the world. <laughs> but but then once she got once she started it's just non-stop now. She, <laughs> apparently I was like this when I was a kid too my mum said like if I was watching sport or play, if I was playing sport in the background my friends learning how to play cricket or soccer I would be the one who was like commentating the game as you go you know kind of thing <laughs> And like actually kind of storytelling about the game, even as you're playing sometimes and or storytelling about, I mean, it's going to sound terrible nowadays, but this was the 80s in New Zealand and the early 90s. But, you know, you're playing war in the background <laughs> and cousins in the hiding in the trees at your property. And, and, you know, you've got the cricket wickets as your rifles and your and but I was always, you know, making it a story from Tour of Duty and like we're in Vietnam. <laughs> like it was always a story, like kind of thing and stuff like that. And my daughter's exactly the same. I literally yeah. cannot go for a walk to the because <laughs> we're in lockdown again, but she's still at school. So we walk to and from school and we take the long way back home through parks, both to stay socially distanced, but also mm-hmm. it's just nice to get some trees and see mm-hmm. a creek and see the changing colours and some squirrels and occasionally a fox. So that's kind of nice you mentally as well yeah. as physically so we kind of do that or going to the supermarkets the other place we walk to to get some groceries and i i don't think i've ever done a walk with her since she started talking where we're just kind of quiet and taking it all in there's always a story <laughs> and first it was her asking me for stories and now she if i if i'm like uh Daddy just wants to be a bit quiet today, Maddie, because mm-hmm. it's been a stressful day or whatever. And and she will just, she literally will tell a story herself. She's, I love she's it. a much better storyteller than I am. She's <laughs> like, <laughs> like, she actually hangs it together and stuff like that. I wonder where she got that from. <laughs> yeah, so I can't really, when I look at my friends laugh and I say, oh, sometimes Maddie just won't stop talking and they just look at me. <laughs> you learn so much about yourself when you're a parent and most of it is not good. <laughs> making up for it now. 
that's why this has been such a great chat. And look, I love speaking to you, Craig. It's such a joy to chat to you again and this time on the podcast. And you're such a well of knowledge and I just love your insights. And I feel like we should do this again, make a date for 2021. Um, if not in person. Yeah, well, in person would be lovely. I'm, I'm a long overdue a trip to Australia and New Zealand. So. Yeah. But I'd love to, uh, yeah, maybe talk again in 2021, see what you've been reading and see what I've been reading and we'll have another crime chat. Oh, that would be that would be lovely. I'm always happy to shine a light on great writing. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful way to start my day here in London. So. And a wonderful way to end mine. How funny is that? Yeah. <laughs>